I wonder if you've ever felt like God is testing you or was testing you. Maybe a, a relationship has been stripped from you or that relationship has been so broken and wounded that you wonder if it's beyond repair. Perhaps career hopes and dreams have been dismantled and you don't know what the right next thing to do is. Or maybe something like cancer has crept in and seems to jeopardize everything from what you can tell. Perhaps you have suffered some sort of financial difficulty. Whatever your situation, perhaps you've looked at it and wondered, God, are you testing my faith? Michael Green once recounted the story that when the Union Pacific Railroad was under construction, an elaborate trestle bridge was built over a certain large canyon in the west as part of a plan to connect St. Louis and California. Before it was open for commercial use, the construction engineer wanted to test its strength, so he loaded a train with extra cars and equipment to double its normal payload. Uh, the train was driven out to the middle of the bridge where it was to remain for an entire day. One worker complained, are you trying to break this bridge? No, said the engineer. I'm trying to prove that the bridge is unbreakable. When God tests your faith, He is not trying to break us. No, He is trying to prove to us that He and His promises are unbreakable. You can and should drive all of the trains of your life out onto Him. He can bear their weight. You should go all in on Him because He has given you His one and only most beloved Son. He is worthy of every ounce of your faith. In the passage that we're considering together this morning, God tests Abraham's faith. He asks him to sacrifice his one and only most beloved son. Abraham amazingly obeys. And at just the right moment, God provides the true sacrifice. As our brother Dennis just pointed out, a type and shadow of Christ. And here we learn that when God tests your faith, you trust Him to provide. You can trust Him in the present. You can trust Him in the midst of the test. You can trust Him with the future, with the tests yet to come. You can put your faith in Him because He will prove Himself faithful. This is what we have the privilege of setting together this morning from God's Word. So if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn. Open your Bible to uh, Genesis chapter 22. Open your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible Word that is totally sufficient for everything you need. For life and godliness. You can find the passage of Genesis 22 provided on page 16. We're going to unpack Genesis 22 in three sections under three headings. Number one, trust God when He tests your faith. Number two, trust God to provide in the present. And number three, trust God to provide for the future. I believe that there is an outline provided there in your bulletins. If you find that useful, then feel free to make use of it. Beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. When your faith is tested, trust the Lord to provide. When your faith is tested, trust the Lord to provide. Let's begin with our first point. Trust God when He tests your faith. Follow along as I read Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, 
whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. These verses open with a reminder of God's history of faithfulness. In the words, after these things. You see them there? After these things. We are being called to remember God's history of His dealings with Abraham, especially in the last chapter. In Genesis 21, God made good on His promise to send Abraham and Sarah a son. God kept His promise just as He said, in the way that He said, at just the time that He said. And God proved faithful to His promises in giving them Isaac. And now, a chapter later, He's asking Abraham to give him up. God proved faithful to His promises to Ishmael too. He promised to make of Ishmael a great nation. And God saved him from death in the wilderness and gave him a family and began building his legacy. And then Genesis 21 concluded with another reminder of God's history of faithfulness. God secured for Abraham a small plot of land that would one day be included as part of the promised land of Canaan. Abraham received a down payment on what his offspring would later receive in full. I so appreciate the Prince of Preachers' insight on that little phrase, after these things. Charles Spurgeon said, Note here that God did not try Abraham like this at the beginning. After these things, God tried Abraham. There was a course of education to prepare him for this great testing time. And the Lord knows how to educate us up to such a point that we can endure in the years to come what we could not endure today. Just as today He might make us stand firm under a burden which ten years ago would have crushed us into the dust. After all the instruction God had given to Him, after close communion with God, receiving the Spirit of God into His soul in rich abundance, after these things God tested Abraham. The test that you are in, God has prepared you for. By your own history. By His working in your own history. You have your own after these things. In your life. Beloved, when your faith is tested, remember God's history of faithfulness to you. His faithfulness to Abraham. His faithfulness to the people of Israel. His faithfulness to you in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God led you to the day of the test. And He prepared you for it. He will not give you beyond what you can bear. God is dropping hints to Abraham here. As He tests Abraham's faith and calling him to offer up his son Isaac, He says... Those words at the end of verse 2, do you see them there? Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. This call to sacrifice Isaac mirrors God's initial call to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In the very words that God chooses in giving this command, this test to Abraham, He is dropping a hint to Abraham that he can be trusted. The hint that God is giving to Abraham there in verse 2 is this. You've trusted me before with the change in direction of your life. The entire course of your life was changed when you followed me before and I gave you that command. You can now trust me with your son's life. Good fathers give hints to their children all the time. We pile the kids into the car and we don't tell them where we are going or what we're doing. And over and over again they ask, Dad, where are we going? What are we doing? And a good father might drop a hint by saying something like this. Well, think about the times we've done this before. What did we do then? And then the kids remember, we went for ice cream. Or or we went for Krispy Kreme. And then 
What does dad say? Look, I'm not going to tell you where we're going or what we're doing. But remember my history of piling you into the car in the past and taking you somewhere you did not know. In that conversation, dad is dropping a hint that he can be trusted. The Lord God is calling Abraham to follow him to the land of Moriah, to a mountain he does not know, to do something that he certainly, almost certainly does not understand. And yet, the Lord drops this massive hint that if Abraham trusted before with the changing the entire direction of his life, then Abraham can trust the Lord with his son's life. Remember God's history of faithfulness. Remembering that might help you to recognize his hints and encourage you to trust him. But you need to realize that God wants your heart. That's what this test is all about. It's all about Abraham's heart. And when God tests you, it's all about your heart too. You need to realize something about this test. That it is a test. It's not a temptation. James 1.13 teaches us that God does not tempt anyone. Uh, some translations, I think, unhelpfully use the word tempt here. But that's not the sense of the text. So I think the ESV has rightly rendered verse 1. God tested Abraham. What God is doing is testing Abraham's trust and his knowledge of him. And God has a right to test his people's faith. We should also be clear that God is opposed to human sacrifice. He prohibits that in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21, and Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. So in this command to sacrifice Isaac, what God is asking Abraham to do is perplexing, isn't it? It's confusing. It's hard to understand. Friends, sometimes we read passages like this or even experience perplexing circumstances in our lives. And all we are left to do is to say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. They are past finding out. Or we say with Isaiah chapter 59, verse 55, verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways are higher than our ways, and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Sometimes what God commands is perplexing, and we shouldn't be surprised that our finite minds don't understand everything about our infinite God and what He's doing. Sometimes we are going to be perplexed by what God does, but as Genesis 22 will bear out, God can be trusted. He will in time make all things plain. He will provide. Clarity will be one of the things that He provides. God in His wisdom may choose to test your faith, to see its metal. You should not be surprised by such tests. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, that God tests us. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange if God tests your faith. And when He does, you can be sure that the test will touch on something precious to you. God can be trusted with what is most precious to you. Don't you think that Isaac was precious to Abraham? I mean, he, he certainly was. God knew it too. I mean, look at the language of verse 2 again. The Lord said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. The Lord is kind of ratcheting up the intensity as the verse moves along there. Abraham lost Ishmael. He was sent out of his house. Now would he lose Isaac too? Would he lose his only son? I realize that God is not denying that Abraham had another son in Ishmael. What God is communicating is that as far as the covenant promises are concerned, 
Abraham had one son, only one son. And he was Abraham's most beloved son. God knew exactly what he was asking of Abraham. And he knows exactly what he asks of you. Do you know why? Because God wants to know if he is most precious to you. If he asks you, are you willing to give up everything and everyone to the Lord? Are you willing to go all in on him? Do you remember what our Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26? He said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus was communicating that our love for him must outstrip all other earthly loves. If we have to choose between our Lord and earthly loves, we unreservedly choose our Lord. We lay down all of our earthly loves for the Lord Jesus because he laid down his life in love for us. Does Jesus have your heart? All of it. When God tests your faith, trust that he is infinitely worthy of everything that you have. Everything that you are and everything that you love. You should be ready to give up everything to the Lord for he gave up his son for you. In many ways, what we see next in the text is a type and shadow of the salvation that God would accomplish in Jesus Christ. And that's why, though God may test you like Abraham, he will not test you in the same way as he tested Abraham. He will not test you in the same way that he tested Abraham. You will not be called to sacrifice your children on an altar. This is a unique event in redemptive history in which God was foreshadowing the sacrifice of His one and only most beloved Son in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not be tested in this way, but your faith will almost certainly be tested. And you should know that God can be trusted. Let's turn now and consider our second point. Trust God to provide in the present. And as we do, follow along as I read Genesis 22, verses 3 to 19. Genesis 22, verses 3 to 19. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from far. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. 
He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord Yahweh will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord Yahweh it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, these verses are emotionally gut-wrenching, aren't they? After we are introduced to the test there in verses 1 and 2, we immediately see Abraham obey and get on the way without delay. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Abraham takes everything with him that he needs to keep God's command. There is not a single hesitating step of Abraham we can find in the text. He knows his duty and he diligently marches on. Beloved, when the Lord tests your faith, he may call you to publicly testify. That's exactly what Abraham does here. In faith, Abraham tells the young men with him that he and his son, they're going to go over there and they're going to worship and we are going to come again to you. Whatever lies ahead for Abraham and his son Isaac, Abraham knows this much. Isaac is the son that God promised. Isaac is the down payment of the offspring that will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Genesis 15, 15. Whatever else happens on that mountain is in the hands of the Lord. But Abraham and Isaac are coming back. Abraham is believing and taking God's at his word of promise concerning Isaac. He's taking him to the bank. So that must mean that somehow, in some way, he and Isaac will worship and both come back alive. Faith testifies. Faith shows itself in obedience. That is part of its testimony. Through his obedience, Abraham is showing us his faith. Obedience makes faith visible. This is James' point in James chapter 2. Real faith is made visible through obedience. Keeping one finger here, because we're going to turn back here. Keeping one finger here, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 1012. James chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now as you turn there, let me just tell you, James is not from the show me state. But in this passage, he has a show me state of mind. James has essentially been saying, your words might reveal correct theology in your head. But now James is going to turn and say, but your works, your obedience will show the faith that's in your heart. It will make what is invisible, visible. Look at what James says beginning there in verse 18. I will read to verse 22. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I hope you notice that James is pushing this language of seeing and sight in these verses. James is concerned that faith is seen. And how does he say that it can be seen? He says that he'll show his faith by his works. That's the channel. The point is clear. Real faith is not seen merely in our orthodox, good, reformed theology. You may be able to answer questions from a historic Christian catechism. But if your life isn't filled with good works that are revealing your faith, then there is cause for concern. Your faith may be dead and useless. James asks there in verse 20 if his readers want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless. Having raised the question, he answers it through the obedience of Abraham displayed in Genesis 22. What James is saying is that Abraham's faith was justified, that is, vindicated and shown to be real through his obedient works. There are two ways in which the New Testament uses the word justification. In the first sense, it's a declaration of righteousness. That's typically something that God does. But then there's another sense in which this word justified is used, and it's vindication. Something proven by evidence. And that's the sense that James is using it here. So here's what James is saying there in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father shown to be in the right by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? The answer is yes. Verses 22 to 24, I think, bring great clarity. We see that faith was active along with Abraham's work. In fact, his faith was propelling his works of obedience. His faith was completed by his works of obedience in the sense that works of obedience are the logical end and expression of faith. Faith is headed somewhere. It begins in our hearts and moves outward into our lives in obedience unto God. This is why Martin Luther once said that while we're saved by faith alone, true faith will never be alone. It will be accompanied by good works. Obedience unto God. That's what's happening with Abraham. What he believed about God propelled him to obey God. As it has often been said, obedience is not the root of faith. It is the fruit of faith. We do not obey in order to be saved. We obey because we have been saved. Well, turning back to Genesis 22 then. I hope your finger was still there, but in case it isn't, uh, that's on page 16, I believe, that the Bible's provided. We can see that in verses 3 to 5, Abraham's faith is being showed. It's being made visible through his obedience. Faith obeys the commands of God, and it does so publicly. Remember, Abraham testified to those young men that he and Isaac would come back. When God tests your faith, He may make the test public. Abraham is not lying. He's not lying to those young men. Instead, he is laying his hopes on God, like those trains were laid on that bridge. Real faith, faith shows itself in obedience, 
is not overcome by the size of the obstacles in front of you. Abraham is facing the obstacle of death. And he believes that God is bigger than death. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is bigger than death? That's why Abraham keeps obeying. Do you believe that God is bigger than death? Are you going to obey even though death may loom over you? Are you going to obey even if something short of death looms over you? God is worthy of your faith. And Abraham shows us that God is worthy of such faith. In verses 6 to 8, Abraham and Isaac are all alone now. And the narrative kind of slows down and we feel each step of the march up the mountain. Twice in these verses we read the words, So they went both of them together. Verse 6. So they went both of them together. As they go, we see Abraham take the wood in verse 6 and we feel him lay it on his son Isaac. And with this we're realizing that, that Isaac is actually no small boy. I mean, yes, verse 5 uses the word boy, but your translation likely has a footnote there that indicates that it can also be translated young man. The term can also have affectionate connotations. And that's why it's probably rendered boy in our English translations. Some scholars estimate that Isaac is at least 18. That seems very possible to me. Whatever the case may be, Isaac is old enough and strong enough to carry a stack of wood, enough for a burnt offering, enough for a lamb, up a mountain. That means that Abraham has had years to grow in love for his son. Years to laugh and love. Each step along that path is no doubt painful for Abraham. I mean, don't forget what God has commanded Abraham to do. He has commanded Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering in verse 2. As they march up the mountain, rolling around in Abraham's mind is the command to kill to dismember his son, light a fire that would consume his body. This is shocking and unimaginable to every loving parent and every reader of this text. Isaac sees his father walking with fire and a knife in his hand, and perhaps he's putting the pieces together. He has evidently seen his father worship before. He has evidently seen what it means to offer a burnt offering. And so he asks at the end of verse 7, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where indeed is that lamb who will be slain? And Abraham's mere reply in verse 8 is, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God is going to provide the sacrifice that he is looking for, my son. Look at what faith believes. Look at who faith believes. Faith believes in God. And faith depends upon God to provide. Faith rests everything upon God. The words of verse 8 are almost redundant. God will provide for himself. Abraham is keeping his hopes fixed on the God of heaven. When your faith is tested, and when your path is perplexing, keep your hopes fixed on the God of heaven, depending upon him to provide. Abraham learned through the years that God keeps his promises in a way that shows his exclusive power and provision. He gained Isaac not through the help of a sinful relationship with Hagar, not through human works, but through depending upon the supernatural opening of a dead womb in Sarah. God can make the dead alive. God provided Isaac's life. God will provide Isaac's sacrifice. The truth is, Isaac is a sinner. Just like we're all sinners. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. 
that the proper payment for our working in sin is eternal death. And just like we deserve to die under God's judgment and wrath, so Isaac deserved to die under God's judgment and wrath. Abraham believes that God will provide a substitute. Abraham believes that God will provide an acceptable sacrifice for worship. This would have been an important lesson for the people of Israel, the first recipients of this book. They were known as the children of Abraham. And they would need to have faith like Abraham, that God would provide an acceptable sacrifice for their sin. Down the road would come one day a son who would be offered for them. They would have to believe that promise from God. Not just through the course of their sojourning and life in the land, but they would need to depend upon God to provide that once and for all sacrifice. That's the trajectory of the rest of the Old Testament. Trusting God to provide the sinless sacrifice. All that God asks of His people, He provides for His people. This is what faith does. It depends wholly and completely upon God to provide. Faith also believes that God can raise the dead. Verses 9 and 10 take us through the full course of Abraham's obedience. Moses narrates each step of the sacrificial preparation. He recounts the arrival, the building of the altar, the arranging of the wood, the binding of Isaac and laying him on top of the wood. The text doesn't announce it, but it's safe to assume that Isaac was a willing sacrifice. Remember, Isaac is no small boy, and Abraham is no young man. Isaac is at least strong enough to carry a stack of wood up the mountain, and Abraham is at least a number of years past 100 years old. The only way for Isaac to be bound, and for his father to lay him on that wood, is if he was willing, he was willing ready to do his father's will. Here, Isaac pictures for us the full obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ to do our heavenly father's will, willing to be bound to wood. What kind of faith had to be in Abraham's heart to take each of these steps and finally to raise the knife up with the full intention, in the words of verse 10, to slaughter his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. We read about it earlier in the service when we read from Hebrews 11. Listen to those words again, just verses 17 to 19. My faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, in other words, he believed, he believed that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which... Figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you hear what the divinely inspired author of Hebrews says about Abraham's faith in the moment of Genesis 22? He tells us what kind of faith Abraham had in his heart. It was the kind of faith that believed that God was able to raise the dead. Abraham was willing to kill his son because he believed that God would raise him from the dead. The writer to the Hebrews says in verse 19 of chapter 11 that Figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive him back from the dead. That phrase, figuratively speaking, in the original language, communicates the idea that God was actually typifying. He was foreshadowing something yet to come in the future. Abraham received him back as a type of what was actually to come in the future in the full. Since Isaac was as good as dead, when God stays the hand of Abraham, it's as if Isaac experienced a return to life. 
He experienced something like a resurrection, but not an actual resurrection. What happened with Isaac was only a partial picture. The fullness of what is pictured and patterned in our text lay ahead for another one and only most beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God would not stay His hand upon that son. What is pictured and patterned here lay ahead for Jesus. He would let that judgment fully fall upon him. God stayed Abraham's hand in verse 11 precisely because Isaac is not the sacrifice that God is looking for. And because Abraham passed the test. His obedient, dependent, resurrection-believing faith was proved in his fear of God and the willingness to sacrifice his son. This is the very nature of faith. Faith fears God. Which is to say faith reverences God, trusts God, depends upon God. That's what fear means. Faith entrusts everything and everyone into God's hands. Abraham showed God his faith through his obedience and dependence. And God saw his faith. Read verse 12 again. You see it there? He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Christian, you can be sure that God sees your faith. Day by day, He sees the proof of your faith and He rejoices in it. He is glorified by it. Like Abraham, don't withhold your most precious loves from Him. And if you're thinking, I I don't know if I can come up with this great display of faith. Beloved, remember the words of one French pastor from many years ago. That Christ receives even the weakest of faith. It is not the size or the strength of your faith that saves. It is the strength of your Savior. He is the one who saves. And you can put your hope in Him. Remember that God did not withhold His Son from you. Remember John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Remember the words of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his son, his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Isaac was spared. Jesus was not. That's because Jesus was the substitute that God provided. And faith looks to the substitute that God has provided. Verses 13 and 14 are glorious. Look at Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold, he looked and behold, behind him was a ram. I love it when the scriptures kind of talk of this. As if this, this just so happened. Right, this just so happened. No, no, no. This was the Lord's plan all along. To provide a sacrifice. Just as Abraham believed and told his son that the Lord provide... So he did. The Lord provided that ram. That's why Abraham names this place the place that the Lord will provide. And now look at the last sentence of verse 13. Read it carefully. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Do you see here? Isaac was a sub this this was Isaac's substitute for his sin. Here is the true sacrifice of a more precious type too. God provided in a way even greater than Abraham had predicted. Abraham predicted a lamb. And God provided a ram. 
perhaps even more than Isaac in this passage. This ram points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac did not die, but the ram and the Lord Jesus did. Like Isaac, Jesus carries his wood, but unlike Isaac, Jesus dies upon the wood. Like Isaac, Jesus walked up a mountain, but unlike Isaac, Jesus died upon Mount Calvary. And he died bearing the judgment of God instead of his people, in the stead of his people. You deserve to die, but Jesus has died in your place. This is central to the Bible's truth and teaching. If you are to be saved from sin and spared from the wrath of God, you must look to and believe upon the substitute, not that you provide, but that God provides. There's nothing you can give to redeem yourself from sin. But God has given His only Son for sinners like you and me. You can't look anywhere else or to anyone else. You must look to the substitute that God has provided. He doesn't accept accept the stained substitute of fallen men like Isaac. He will only accept the sinless substitute of His Son. God provided the ram to die in the place of Isaac. God has provided His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners like us. He tells us this over and over again in the Scriptures that He has done it. He has done it. So listen to Romans 5.8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He, that is God, made Him, God did it, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And what did He do? He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy His wrath against our sins. Friends, if you are to be saved, then your faith must look to the acceptable sacrifice and substitute that God has provided. You must believe upon Jesus. Believe that Jesus lived for you. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Believe that He became the willing and obedient sacrifice for you. Not just up to death, but through death. Believe that He died on the cross as your substitute. Believe that He was raised from the grave on the third day. Not figuratively, but for real. Turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The substitute that the Lord has provided. Trusting in Him you will be saved. Friend, believe upon Him. Notice now, in verses 15 to 19, that the angel of the Lord speaks yet again. And Abraham returns to the men again. What ties these verses together is the keeping of promises. God assures Abraham that He will keep His covenant promises. And Abraham kept His promise in verse 5, that he and Isaac would return just as He said. And He does. God's reassurance that He will keep His promises to Abraham and through Abraham to the nations have been further explained in what we have read. The seed, the promised, promised to Abraham here, harkens back to the seed promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The son who would come and crush the head of the serpent, possessing the gate of his enemies and bringing blessing to the peoples of the earth would come from Abraham's line. And in light of the New Testament, we can now see that God will bless the nations of the earth through a future offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who will not be spared death, but He will save many from death. We have the privilege of seeing that God kept His promises in Jesus Christ in the past. And He provided in the present. And we should trust God to provide in the future. This is our third and final point. Follow along now as I read Genesis 22, verses 20 to 24. Genesis 22, 
20-24. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, and Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jiplaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makha. Now, I wonder what you make of these verses. Uh, do they, do you find them to be a strange genealogy tacked on to the end of a gut-wrenching story? A wonderful story. A true story that teaches us that we can trust God. Perhaps you think this is totally disjointed from the narrative. Some scholars think that Moses just uses genealogies to demarcate new material. And I don't think that respects Moses at all as an author. Uh, perhaps you notice that Rebecca's name is included there in verse 23. Maybe you think that Moses is just preparing us for the marital union of Isaac and Rebekah. Well, that is going to happen. That's part of it. But that's not the main point. And the main point of this section ties actually directly to what we just considered. Beloved, think about it for a moment. In verse 17, God has just told Abraham that he will surely multiply Abraham's offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. That's a lot of sons, right? God has just promised Abraham a lot of sons. But in this genealogy, who's having sons? It's his brother. His brother is having a lot of sons. Abraham's brother is multiplying sons like rabbits. It's ringing in his ears. And there's Abraham standing with one lone son. How are we going to get from Isaac to a great multitude, to a nation? How are we going to get to offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore? The same way that we got to that one lone son in Isaac, by trusting God to provide and bring His promises to pass. Think about what the people of Israel are listening to in this story, right? Moses is writing this book to the people of Israel in the wilderness, preparing to go into the promised land. The hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of them, are there in the wilderness, hearing about Nahor's sons. And Abraham's just got one. They would have stood amazed that out of that one son came many sons. And it was God who did it all. You might think to yourself, well, this guy, Nahor, I mean, he's having so many sons. He is surely going to have some staying power in the biblical storyline, right? Well, let me ask you, how does, how does the song go? Does it go like this? To, to go, Father Nahor had many sons, many sons had Father Nahor, and I am one of them, and so are you. The song doesn't go like that at all. God didn't make a covenant with Nahor. He didn't promise to send the Messiah through the line of Nahor. Here is the next test of Abraham's faith. Because, beloved, there is almost always a next test. The next test of Abraham's faith is to trust that God will bring the fullness of his promises to pass. That he will provide the answer to this perplexing situation of having just one son when everybody else around him seems to be having a bunch. You see, what's past is indeed prologue. You've trusted God for this one son. Now trust him for the many sons yet to come. What is more, trust him for that one saving son who will indeed fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. 
to crush the head of the serpent, to crush sin and death, to possess the gate of his enemies and rule over it because he's conquered them. Trust him for that saving son who will bring blessing to the peoples of the earth through his salvation. The people of Israel would have to trust God, not just for the many sons, but especially for the messianic son. The fulfillment of that promise that still lay ahead in the future for them as they're sitting there in the wilderness waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Beloved, the kingdom of God starts so small. But our God is so big. And it grows. The kingdom of God grows because God is growing his people in and through sometimes the testing of their faith and through God proving himself faithful. As we conclude, consider this. Like Abraham, we can look back on God's history of faithfulness to us. Like Abraham, we can and should trust in the substitute that God has provided. For our tests in the present and the future, we can look back and see that God has provided and will provide. Like those doubled train cars resting in the middle of the bridge, you can lay as much weight on God as you can imagine. And He won't break. He can't break. Our unbreakable God has made unbreakable promises. So when He tests your faith, trust that He has and will provide. He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all, will give us all things that we need. Beloved, when your faith is tested, trust the Lord to provide. Let's pray for such faith now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to remember that you have indeed provided that perfect sacrifice. Your one and only Son. A Lamb who was slain. Father, we have trusted Him for the most essential and eternal reality in our whole lives. Help us to trust You with everything else. Father, help us to go all in on You because You went all in on us, giving us Your one and only Son. Father, give us such faith today and every day we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.